Yes, tonight then our lecture is on an analysis of the international student revolt. And of necessity, in order to make a well-rounded tape, and also for some who are here who haven't followed along with my lectures and my books, I will have to give a few things, some of the things at the beginning, which will be a repetition for some of you who have either been studying it here at Farrell House with the tapes or who have done a lot of work uh, with the books that have come out. But I'll try to hasten over that so as to spend a fair amount of time on the present situation in the student revolt itself. We do have to remember that in order to understand any moment of history, and expressly our own, that we do have to trace two streams. And if we don't have some sense of these two streams, we're really not educated people. Nor can we really understand where we ourselves are. There are thousands of people who are caught up who feel very, very modern in the middle of the aggressive uh, student movement who in reality don't understand where they are. They don't understand who they are for the simple reason that they don't understand these two streams out of which they have come. And the two, two streams out of which they have come, and all of us come, but thinking of it in this particular situation of a student revolt at the present moment and what it means in our culture, uh, the two streams are the philosophic stream and the historic stream. Uh, quite contrary to existential thinking, one does have to see that history is going somewhere. And nothing comes out of nowhere. And this is an absolute thing. So if, for example, some of you one time, sometime will look at a chart made uh, of the development of the various uh, schools of um, schools of music, you must understand that nothing just appears in the various schools of music. There is always a flow, uh, and you can trace, uh, come down through Beethoven and on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's true in everything in life. Quite contrary to the fact that a uh, modern man might stress that history's going nowhere, it's exactly the opposite. We must understand where we come from. The other school, the other stream, is the philosophic stream we must understand the development of a philosophy. Now, philosophy, of course, to some people seem like, seems like a very scholastic word, but it's really not. We must remember and keep emphasizing that we're all philosophers. Uh, the peasant is a philosopher, too, because every man has a world view. And basically, philosophy is not to be thought of as an academic subject or a scholastic subject. It's to be thought of as the developments and thought, uh, thoughts of people's world views, the views of people. So, in order to understand the student revolt, we do have to understand the philosophic flow and the historic flow which stands back of us in our present time. You remember that in my emphasis, in my books and in the lectures, I go back to the beginning of modern science and stress the fact that uh, Oppenheimer has constantly said, and Alfred, War Alfred North Whitehead has insisted, that modern science was born in a Christian setting. I think this is absolutely right. And the, there are many things that I discuss in my books as to what is involved in the Christian setting, the Christian consensus that produced science as we now know it. Um, Christianity in this consensus is not contrary to the birth and genius of modern science. It's quite contrary. Uh, we must understand it was born out of it. But in uh, certainly the central thing is that which uh, Whitehead has said, and that is the fact that my, uh, science began... Because modern man, pardon me, 
science began because man, uh, these men, the scientists, believed that creation was by a reasonable God, and because it was by a reasonable God, therefore we should not be surprised if we could find it out by reason. This may sound like a truism if you've heard me say it for two or three years, and some of you have been reading it in the books for two or three years, but don't take it for granted. It's a very, very serious uh, consideration, something to understand that this is amazing, uh, something that's completely contrary to the modern mentality. The insistence that I keep making that if people had the present view of philosophy, I don't believe modern science would have ever been born. Uh, with the corollary to that, that I don't think modern science is going to continue as we have known science now, the basis is gone. I think we're going to be left with a technology uh, which is open to manipulation. But nevertheless, we must see that this mentality of early science, and to think of Copernicus and the others, Francis Bacon, Galileo, Kempler, I recently found a statement by Galileo that uh, moved me very much. Galileo said, when I look at the order in the universe and all this beauty, uh, he meant by beauty the order, uh, I am brought to the place of to worship the God who has created it. And here is something that, this is the mentality which gave birth to science. And now in this kind of a situation, then men viewed them a couple things as true. They viewed uh, the world as a world of order. A world in which there was expectancy that you could always move on and find more and more order. That you would never come to the place where you would fall off the end of the universe and the dragons would eat you up in the area of knowledge. The universe was not going to play a dirty trick on you because it had been created by a, God, a reasonable God, a God of reason. It also meant that there was a strong emphasis on the importance of nature because nature was there and God had made it. It also meant that there was no dilemma between uh, the object and subject relationship, which would be more in line with my lecture on epistemology. Uh, there was a clear dividing line then between reality and fantasy. All these things were rested there. And man was a significant man. Man was wonderful, though fallen. He was a fallen man. He was a sinner. He was lost, but he was wonderful. And the, maybe to put it in the 20th century terms and to feel... As moved toward the student, modern student mentality, there was no threat of a machine. Not using the machine as a concept of the machine that man has made, but the cosmic machine. There was no threat of man's alienation because he didn't see everything as a cosmic machine. Uh, God and himself were outside of the machine. They were not a part of the deterministic system, and he didn't have to be afraid either of the cosmic machine, nor did he need to be afraid of the machine which he himself made because he could distinguish from the machine. So therefore, the, mo the early scientists, the modern scientists in the beginning, would never have been afraid of the computer, the way some modern men are afraid of the computer, uh, simply because they knew the, the essence of what distinguished the, between themselves and the machine was not just who thought faster in a certain digital uh, kind of uh, sequence. So all these things are involved, and this was where modern science was born. You remember coming in from the other side, I've emphasized in various places, but expressly in my lectures on epistemology, concerning the Greeks, the understanding of the Greeks, and especially Plato, uh, but not only Plato, that you had to have some kind of universals if the particulars were to have any meaning, which Jean-Paul Sartre has put into 20th century terms in the concept that a finite point must have an infinite reference point or it has no meaning. Uh, at the beginning, at the beginning, uh, the, the Greeks tried to find a meaning in the polis, 
Uh, you remember those of you who've read Death in the City, the polis to the Greek was not only the word, not only city, although that is the basic meaning of the word polis, but it is society. And they tried to find a meaning in society, something that sounds very modern indeed. Uh, and this failed. And after this, they tried to find it in their gods, but their gods were never big enough. And uh, therefore, if you look back to the Greeks, they understood the dilemma. They had to have a universal in order to have meanings to the particulars. But at the same time, while this was the case, they never found any place big enough for the universal. So their gods were personal gods, but finite gods. And as such, uh, they never could tell, for example, as I've stressed over and over again, uh, whether the fates, now if you read the Greek literature, uh, they never were able to distinguish whether the fates were behind the gods or whether the fates uh, were uh, were controlled by the gods. You have a constant uh, a constant uh, moving backward and forward like a shuttlecock uh, of these two ideas. You read Greek literature and sometimes it seems as though the gods are controlling the fates, sometimes the fates are controlling the gods. This is a dilemma. They had no place large enough to put their universal. And as such, though, they understood that there must be a universal if the particulars were to have any meaning. They never found the universal which they knew must exist. And so the Greeks were caught. You remember coming up to escape from reason and the god who was there, I then deal with Leonardo da Vinci in a very special way. Leonardo da Vinci is a man to whom every modern man should take off his hat and bow three times. Because Leonardo da Vinci, living way back at the point of the High Renaissance, understood the dilemma to which modern man would come. He was a prophet in the area of rationalism and humanism. And uh, you remember I've emphasized over and over again that he tried to paint the universal. Because he saw the beginning with rationalism, and for some of you who are new here uh, at Labrie and in the, these thought forms, you remember the definition of rationalism. Rationalism is man beginning totally from himself and trying, though he is finite, to find sufficient uh, a sufficient universal, something that mathematically is impossible. And Leonardo understood that. Leonardo was the first modern mathematician, and we can never overstress his brilliance in understanding uh, that beginning with the area of rationalism be, and then ma mathematics, one would only end with particulars and which you would only end with a machine. Again, a very, very modern man. Very modern. As we go and look at the things of the Renaissance, you, we are looking at something not far away from ourselves, actually, in the most brilliance of the, brilliant of these men. And he tried to paint something. Not, not in reason, but the artist. He tried to paint a meaning uh, of the soul. And he failed. And this was Leonardo da Vinci's dejectedness. He was totally dejected. And when the king of France, Francis I, took him away to France as an old man, he was a totally dejected man because he had played the game to the end and it hadn't come out right. In uh, the next step, you remember, as I developed these things, it doesn't mean that much detail couldn't be developed in between Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Immanuel Kant. And the simple th factor is uh, that one cannot expect to understand the modern students the modern, modern man, unless he understands Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Jean-Jacques Rousseau is the father of modern man in a very real way. He is the first of the four great names of those that make the watershed between the old thinking and the new thinking. And the Durants, in their history of man, which they have recently com completed, I think are completely right, uh, completely right in the factor of saying, uh, putting an emphasis on the fact uh, that Durant is to, uh, Durant's make the first man in the volume of modern man uh, to be, uh, be Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I think this is right. Many men who are my friends would put more emphasis on Kant than I, 
uh, in the development of modern man and the direction toward the student revolt and so on in their thinking. Uh, and it isn't that I min minimize Immanuel Kant, but I do believe he was definitely influenced by Jean-Jacques Rousseau and that the two of them be considered together. You remember again my lecture over and over again on the factor uh, that uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his friends saw the threat of the machine. These were the men who began to hear the clank of a cosmic machine and to understand what was going to happen. And that is that man was going to be sucked into the machine. And as man was sucked into the machine, he would be a part of the machine and man would die. And without understanding this, you who come out of the student revolt, student movement today simply cannot understand who you are. And these people, therefore, in desperation, put forth the concept of, a, uh, of an autonomous freedom to try to set off an autonomous machine, something that's in, uh, intellectually impossible, to have an autonomous freedom and autonomous machine. These uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Immanuel Kant had not yet accepted the fact the whole thing was going to blow apart in a total dichotomy. <coughs> the total dichotomy in which you people live, your generation is. Uh, but nevertheless, you feel the tension, the tension between an autonomous machine and an autonomous freedom. Uh, the autonomous freedom kicked up the bohemian life. Uh, the, the hero became the artist, the artist who really didn't give a care uh, about society. Uh, he lived in his garret. He was usually a, the, he was a painter, sculptor. Uh, he lived in defiance of society and its norms. He made he made love uh, to his model and didn't marry something like this. And what you have is a uh, suddenly the hero is emerging, a very new kind of a hero, a hero out of the out of John Jacques Rousseau, the hero who who smashes the norms and he smashes them because he doesn't want anything to bind him. He wants a really autonomous freedom, a freedom not just from revelation of God, but a freedom from society, a freedom from the bounds of marriage, a freedom from the bounds that his woman will place upon him, the freedom that his, from bounds that his children will place upon him. And you already feel this very, very strongly in Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote great swelling things of how to raise children, but what he never told is that he had children which he left in an orphan asylum. Gauguin was exactly the same in his art, the search for freedom, but in the search for freedom what he never mentioned was that he left his, free, his family destitute in Paris. And you only have to read the pathetic letters of his wife pleading for bread for his children, and at the same time knowing that he was giving birth to a bastard son uh, in, uh, in Tahiti, uh, that all his life long, his son is still living, snatches dimes and quarters by making some of the most horrible paintings anybody's ever made in the world, but selling them for tourist bait because his name is Goga. So you have already the feeling of hell here, of real modern damnation, of a freedom that doesn't turn out right. A freedom that is a, as a, that's a real hell for everybody else. It's a hedonism in the most solid sense. And uh, along with this, at the same time running parallel with it, is the, is the emphasis on the nature. And that is an autonomous, uh, autonomous machine in which all freedom is gone, in which man is caught in determinism. And man merely becomes a part of a cog. Uh, and that is all. A big cog moving a small cog, a small cog moving another cog, and there's only the clank of machinery. As I stress further, you remember, and you, this always must be understood to be there because it's what you're raised with in your universities all over the world today. And that is that science, of course, has changed from the early science, from modern science, to what I call modern, modern science, in which now we have shifted 
uh, to the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system, in which there is no God and man is in the machine, in which instead of science merely de working with, phys with physics, chemistry, and astronomy and so forth, it now on the same basis deals with the social sciences and psychology. And man is then merely a part of a machine. Man is dealt with merely like physics. Man is dealt with merely like astronomy. You can't have this kind of a total determinism and man still have meaning. So it's not only God that disappears to modern, modern science, it's man who disappears. Freedom disappears. Morals disappear. And as I keep stressing, study the Marquis de Sade. Because the Marquis de Sade puts forth very well where we end with this. Morals are gone. Morals are gone. What is, is right. Love is gone. Beauty is gone. Significance is gone. And Nietzsche cries out, uh, as the first modern man to do so, God is dead. But we must always keep emphasizing that Nietzsche really understood what he was said when he said man was, uh, God is dead. And his suicide, I am convinced, is a philosophic statement. His suicide, his insanity and his suicide. People sometimes say it was because he had venereal disease, and he did have a venereal disease. And maybe that contributed to his psychological unbalance. But I don't think it's the real explanation. Nietzsche was bright enough to know that if God is dead, everything to which, uh, everything for which God gives an answer is dead. And everything's dead. You are left on a salt sea in which nothing can live. And you can feel this as it develops later, of course, to a man like Sartre where you come to a situation where everything is absurd. We live in an absurd universe. And we're left with this great, tremendous clanking thing of the impersonal plus time plus chance. And there's no meaning. Everything is alienated. Man feels a cosmic alienation. Uh, the cosmic kind of an, and a folly of Dada. A folly of a Marcel Duchamp in which everything is me, everything really is a sick joke. Uh, the emphasis of modern man suddenly modern man suddenly seeing this and becoming afraid. He has looked at the Medusa head and he doesn't like what he sees. And a man like Adler in his book uh, with the difference of man and the difference it makes saying that he doesn't know what difference there is to man but we better hurry up and find a difference for man uh, or we will treat men like machines. And of course we are treating men like machines. The, the stink of the plastic general plasticness of the culture which many of you hate and out of which has come the student revolution is a real stink it's a stink of dying men men who have died because no one knows that they are men nobody knows any distinction of man and the culture gradually whether it's in the subway the metro uh, whether it's in the art wherever it is whether it's in the science classes whether it's in the huge universities with their computers and treating you like a computed part and merely a number, they're all the results of the death of man. Man is dead. Man can't tell himself from the machinery. Man can't tell himself from the animals. But worse than that, he can't tell himself from the cosmic machine. And as such, uh, there is a stench of death. And the generation before you has, has done this. It's been going on for some time. But the generation immediately before your professors have taught this, that you're only a machine. The jet professors have taught you you're only an animal. You're the only the end of an evolutionary process which really has no meaning. And in such a situation, even though they've held out a kind of an optimistic evolutionary humanism, it will not stand up. And suddenly the, the, universe, the uni universities begin to be horrible places. You must understand I am against the, the educational establishment as it is. I really feel very strongly opposed to it. What the solutions are is another question. 
But the, evolu the, the educational establishment today is built on a mechanistic universe in which man is only a part of the machine, where the whole thing is only a technology, and where the humanness, the humanness of the student is, is, just, uh, is just pushed aside as time goes on. So what you must understand, the, the, revolution, the revolution has not come out of nowhere, nor is the revolution entirely wrong. And we must say that as Christians. The Christians, the Christians must have a sense of, uh, of the fact that there is a, uh, a right portion of the, unit, of the revolution. The fact is the Christians have been slow. I don't understand why the evangelicals have been so slow, urging the status quo, urging the students to go on and merely fit into a technological, technological university situation which has been stinking for a number of years and is getting worse and worse. We should have been the ones to understand that there was something wrong with it. We should have been the ones to understand that you cannot teach an e a mechanistic uni uh, evolution. You cannot teach a mechanistic behaviorism. And the educational situation turned out to be the kind of an education that's worth anything. When the student begins to scream against the technological side of the educational thing, he is not wrong, he is right. And it's been produced out of the philosophy and the growth of the philosophy that I've suggested. I won't go on and stress as I have, uh, as I could, the factor of Hegel. I've stressed that sufficient here, sufficiently here, uh, except to say, of course, it means that after Hegel there is no antithesis. There is nothing which may be said to be true as opposed to that which is not true, in any absolute sense. There is nothing as that to be said to be right, as in, right in contrast to that which is absolutely wrong. It's all related back to the whole problem, all the way back to the Greeks, the universals, and so on but in a new setting, a new frame. And this is also a part of who you are. The present generation is raised in a place when there is no absolute right, when there is no absolute wrong, when there is no absolute truth, when there is no absolute not truth. And therefore, I would just say, it is a little bit strange that people who have taught this in our universities for a number of years would suddenly become frightened at the relativism of the students because they've taught it. This is who they are. They've made you. They've shaped you with their own hands, and now they have gotten so they don't like what they have shaped. You remember, and then I go to Kierkegaard, of the absolute dichotomy between the rational and the non-rational. And again, it must be said, this is who you are. You are, you are a generation on this side of the, gen, of, the, of the generation gap, to those of you who are here and younger. Uh, a generation and who, who has no hope in rational answers. Not really. The hope is in a non-rational leap, an optimism in which, in order to have any sense of not only God, but love and beauty and significance and moral emotions, reasons and reason must be negated. Reason must be negated. By definition, if you are going to find optimistic answers, it must be in the area of no reason and not in the area of reason. What's being given up then is a concept of, of certainty. What's given up is a concept of any unified field of knowledge, any way in which you can bring all knowledge together and all life together. Modern man is seen, therefore, in this situation uh, to be a, uh, a real mystic, to be a real mystic. A modern man is seen then to be in a place where he's a mystic in a way that people were never mystics in the past. And that is, he is a mystic in the willingness to leap with no reason for doing so except that he must. 
He accepts that he's a machine and is a part of the machine, only a sociological phenomena. And yet at the same time he cannot live this way. As Christians, of course, we have an answer. Man was made in the image of God, and that is even if so, therefore, even if he says he is a machine, he's not a machine. Modern man leaps without even know why, knowing why he must, but leap he does. So what you begin to get is all kinds of upper story hopes, all kinds of upper story answers. Now then, you remember that I stress further in my lectures the fact of the line of despair developing from philosophy through the arts to music to general culture to theology. And also the emphasis uh, on the fact that this has now influenced all kinds of people sweeping from the real intellectuals to the educated around the middle class and touching the workers or whatever you want to give. It simply is not true that the lower classes are not touched by this. I think it's one of the great horrible mistakes in modern evangelism uh, and in modern among modern evangelicals to think that uh, the modern way of thinking only touches, let's say, the top 2% of intellectuals. This is absolutely ununderstanding. You find exactly the same thing which is swept through the mass media down into the workers. Now what you have left undoubtedly is a majority of people who still are in the middle class. And I would accept the fact there, and I want to discuss this later, in what it means in the student revolt, that the majority is still would still be the middle class. But you must understand who this middle class are. They're not Christians as a majority. What they have is a memory. They have no basis for their values. They only have a memory that there was once a better day. Something like this. So therefore, when you as their children ask why for something, let us say uh, the uh, so-called puritanical work ethic, you're never given an answer. Anything else is just considered inconceivable. And this is the plastic culture. This is the thing that the Beatles gave so beautifully in Sgt. Pepper. She is leaving home with the parallel words, we gave her everything money could buy. There are many of you who are young here who feel that this is what your home has been. Everything money could buy out of the affluent society, but no answers and no real human relationships. Now, modern man, therefore, as we've again stressed over and over again, is left with an upper story leap, whether it's the existential experience, whether it's Wittgenstein's, uh, early Wittgenstein coming to understand that there's only silence in the upper story, and therefore coming to forcing modern philosophy into linguistic analysis. Aldous Huxley's introducing of drugs as an upper story experience. The later Heidegger, who has had so much influence in theology, you know, of listening to the poet. Malraux, Andre Malraux, that art is the mystical meaning of life. The happenings that began to take place, and first of all, with the provost, the provosts were the first of the first student movement in the modern, in the, in the really in our our generation sense. The provosts of Holland, and they began to have happenings in the street 
Not that there was rationality, not that they were hoping for rational things, but they began to have their happenings in the street except instead of Marcel Duchamp's happening in the university or, or in the museum or in a peep show or something. And all the time the clanking machinery in the area of reason was always the same and that is man is only a machine, man is dead. And our generation has been conditioned to accept uh, any kind of upper story experience. And as I keep stressing, once you accept the upper story experience as the meaning of life, you can shift from one to the other because it doesn't matter which you choose because there is no category upon which to make a choice because categories have been left downstairs in the area of reason. And as categories have been left downstairs in the area of reason, you can have, you can search for an existential experience or you can seek for a drug experience final experience, or you can try to have some kind of another happening. You can put it into religious terminology or secular terminology, it doesn't matter. And even if you follow the modern theology, it means there's no categories because you have no God has spoken. You are left with Wittgenstein's silence in modern theology. There's no God there to speak and so you have no categories. So what you're left with in the modern theology is that modern theology will always sprinkle holy water on the, what the surrounding culture says. And you must understand this. Modern theology is a magnificent sprinkler of holy water. So everything, uh, everything modern, modern culture says, and then uh, the modern theology shakes its head in a very, a very holy way and says yes and sprinkles holy water on it. So you're left in this sort of a situation. The, the thing in understanding the student revolt, perhaps, is that your the parallel that I have used in the past, which is important because of the rise of the modern anarchist, uh, to understand this is this thing I have stressed about Terry Southern. Terry Southern, who wrote Candy and so forth, but who's a very serious man, really, uh, and uses pornographic writings to serious, serious philosophic ends. You remember this thing I've used over and over again, and wherein writers in revolt he says, uh, why do we write pornographic material? We write pornographic material and throw this, as it were, up against the wall. He doesn't use that term, it's mine. But we throw, as it were, up against the wall in the hope that an ethic for a golden age will drop out. In other words, you just hope something will drop out without any reason at all. I would make an exact parallel with that, which I'll draw later with the anarchists. Because there are anarchists on, many, many anarchists today, in the student movement. The black flag flies with the red, wins the Sorbonne storm. You must see, however, that all the time uh, the great middle class, and that would include many of your professors, in my definition of it here, uh, they, they, are, they produced all this, but they don't like what they have produced. Remember my emphasis on the death wish of the, the liberal uh, in the New Statesman by Mugridge. <coughs> And you have a, a constant, a constant um, uh, attrition here. Parallel, I like my illustration, parallel to the musicians who heard John Cage's, who played John Cage's music uh, uh, on, for, with, the New, with the New York Symphony under Bernstein. And then you remember the thing I've used so many times now, but I think it makes a picture worth repeating. And that is, when he was finished, Bernstein says he thought he heard steam escaping from the pipe when he was taking his bows. 
And then he realized the, the musicians behind him who had just played his music were hissing him. But uh, I want to make a strong point. They, sh they were really hissing themselves, most of these men. Because most of them really would have had the same philosophy as Cage, that the world is only a thing of chance. But when they heard it in that way, and they were sophisticated and sensitive, in the area of music, they could not stand the result. So in reality, when they hissed Cage, they hissed themselves. And your professors who don't like your smashing up their windows and urinating in their waste paper baskets, they're hissing themselves without knowing it, because they're the produced you. And you can feel this in the, in this, uh, the whole thing is it's built up in the student movement. So when people marched down in Selma, and I'm not entering into the race question here, but when people marched in Selma, the administrations in the north of the universities and the faculties all cheered. And then the students came back from Selma, uh, and they, uh, they beleaguered the administration and all the faculty cheered. And the administration ch stopped cheering. And then pretty soon they began to burn up the dissertations of the faculty, and the faculty stopped cheering. A very curious book. It would make a comedy if one knew how to make to do a drama. And these people have produced you, and they don't like that which to them now is discomforting, because these people like their fat jobs. They, they, they like their ease. They like their long summer vacations. They like the, the hidden places of the ivory tower of the modern academic world. And they've destroyed it. This is Malcolm Mugridge's Death Wish of the Liberal. It's like a man who produces a bastard son and then doesn't like him because he's a bastard. And this is exactly the same way as, uh, as your generation. Your professors have produced you. And then they don't like you. Not when you strike them. They only like you when you strike somebody else. All this is the flow of the student movement. It's where you've come from. In the past, we had, in our northern European countries, we had a form and a freedom. Today, the form is gone because we live in a post-Christian world, so there is only a freedom. And the freedom turns to chaos without categories of judgments. You must understand, speaking of, of the Anglo-Saxon world, which I'm dealing with now primarily, in the Anglo-Saxon world, in government, governmentally, uh, in both England and America, we are the, we stood upon the basis of Samuel Rutherford's Rex Lex. And Rex Lex was written by Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford's a dear man. You must read his writings if you're going to be an educated man or if you're going to be a very knowledgeable Christian. And he was the leader of the second uh, Reformation in Scotland. The first was under Knox, the second under Rutherford, and the second, the third under Bonar and McShane. And the second was led by Samuel Rutherford, who taught at St. Mary's, at St. Andrews. School is still there, <coughs> knows nothing about his theology any longer. But he wrote Rex Lex, Law is King. Why can law be king rather than sociological averages or the arbitrary actions of a king or a man be king? The answer was law can be king because there was a basis for law. What was the basis for law? Well, he was writing in Northern Reformation Europe in which he believed the Bible was the word of God and therefore there was a base upon which to build law. Both a, both a simple and a profound concept. In other words, you don't have many bases upon which to build law. It goes back, you remember what I said about all the way back to the Greeks. The polis, it fails. The gods, they weren't big enough. 
but with the Reformation and the, uh, you had both form and freedom. The Roman Catholic countries never have given freedom. They have given form, but never freedom. Never. When Garibaldi marched through Italy, it had to be there in order to get any freedom and uh, out of Italy, uh, it had to be with force. It did not come naturally. Spain still has not given up its concepts. This is the, the Roman Catholic Church is totalitarian in its concepts, which immediately, which easily spreads then over into totalitarianism of state. Form without freedom. The Reformation gave both freedom and form. But the freedom did not lead to chaos because there was a biblical base. And this illustration I use of Paul Robert, or of Paul Robert's paintings in Montpenau down here in Lausanne. And please don't leave Switzerland without seeing it in one of your days off. It's the old Supreme Court building. It isn't any longer. Just beyond San Francois. And Paul Robert, who was a born-again Christian and lived, uh, painted just before the turn of the century, was asked to paint a mural uh, on the stairway that the judges would have to see. And what he painted was something he called justice instructing the judges. Judge, uh, justice instructing the judges. And the question is, how can the judges act? And he, he painted, I don't know if he knew Rex Lex, I, he may may not have, but he painted as a real Christian understanding. And that is, the justice points with her sword at, at a book, and the book on the book is written the law of God. So therefore, you don't have only sociological law. If you're interested in this, you can listen to my lecture uh, on, uh, on the relativism in law in the United States. And the same thing's in true in England today. Now, after Samuel Rutherford then giving a base for government in which you can have both form and freedom, Locke picks this up, and Locke tried to secularize it. And he still gave the same concepts, but now without the base. Although one must remember that in several places Locke cheated, because when he came down into the really gritty point, he would appeal to the gospel, in which case I think he denied his position. But nevertheless, in general, he... he he carried on a memory of Rex Lex, but in a secularized form. This then came into the United States through the founding fathers. And you had two streams meeting in the, uh, in the founding of the American Constitution. Thinking of America, primarily tonight, here at this place. And that is, you had Witherspoon, who was a real born-again Christian, uh, of Princeton University, who brought Samuel Rutherford, to the, to the founding, to the floor of the founding fathers uh, directly. And then you had most of the other men who were really humanists or deists, but nevertheless had a Christian mentality and brought Samuel Rutherford, whether they knew it or not, through luck. And what you had in the founding of the American position, uh, and you had the same thing in the development of Britain, was a real form <coughs> and a freedom, with, in which man did not feel alienated from the universe and in which man had a sense of categories. Now, a man like Jefferson did not have a sufficient base for his categories. But nevertheless, he was functioning in a Christian mentality, so he had a concept of categories. He had a concept of possible limitations upon freedom. So you could have freedom without anarchy. Now, when you come... You come to the, the Christian, therefore, he has a very strong position in this place. And I would keep insisting it's not the Christian who is the leaper. Modern man seems to indicate, seems to think in our university circles especially, that the Christian has to be the leaper. 
It's not the Christian who is believer. It's the humanistic man who is believer, who must leap, leap, leap into a mysticism with nothing there. And you must understand this is not merely a matter of tossing a coin. Most people, it is true, come to their presuppositions like children catch measles. But thinkers do not. Thinkers choose their presuppositions. If you're going to have, have a claim to be an honest thought, a man of thought, if you're going to have a claim of worth, uh, worth a sante, of having intellectual integrity, you must realize what your presuppositions are and choose your presuppositions upon the basis of what they answer in contrast to what they don't answer. Modern rationalism, modern humanism is a presupposition which does not suffice. Christianity is a presupposition which does suffice. We make our choices not as a leap in the dark, but on the basis of what answers what is. And this is the way to come to it. I always stress, you know, Camus' pest. I won't go into it again tonight. I've done it so many times. The Christian is a man who is able to look at the world and realize that everything that is is not right. Everything is that is not is not right. There has been a fall. There are some things which are against the character of God. This thing which we never can stress too much, and that is Jesus in front of the tomb of Lazarus, where in claiming to be God, he could be filled with anger, anger, absolute wrath at what is. So he claims to be God, but he's angry at what is, because what is is contrary to what it was made to be, as it was represented by the death of Lazarus. Our social injustice, our industrial injustice, all these things. We have a reason for saying these things are wrong. Modern man has no reason for saying they're wrong. He has no categories upon which to say they are wrong or they're right. No matter how loud he screams, you only have to twist the dial, Two notches to the left and he will shift his position because he has no strong ground upon which to stand. It is the Christian that understands that not everything that is is right. If a student has accepted a mechanistic universe and then begins to scream right and wrong, he is, he's filled with folly. He's filled with inconsistency. Because in a really mechanistic universe, there is no category of right and wrong. What is is right. The Marquis de Sade is right. On the other hand, if you live in the upper story world of the modern mysticism, you have no right to say anything is right or wrong either because in the upper story there is no reason and if there's no reason, there's no possibility of category. And you remember again my lectures here at great length in the area of epistemology. Now, here is the, stu this is the climate of the student revolt. Not to understand this is not to understand the student revolt. Not to understand this is not to understand yourself if you're a part of this, of this situation. The student revolt is in a climate where there are no final answers and where there are no categories. Downstand, downstairs, man is a machine and is dead. Upstairs, as I've stressed over and over again, we are left with the situation of Antonioni's blow-up. There's murder, with, murder without guilt. There are no moral categories. There's love without meaning. There are no human categories. And even beyond this, uh, as Fellini would stress and others would stress and Bergman would stress and as be stressed in the Belle du Jour, for example, there were not even the categories between reality and fantasy. 
Many people are taking drugs, but even without the drugs, there are no real categories to be sure of the difference between reality and fantasy. And in this situation, one can understand that we, the student revolt is, is just like the pounding of the sea. Therefore, we must understand that we're confronted with the two great masses. And the major mass is undoubtedly, the, 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 the majority is still the middle class. These are the people who want the old values, but they have no base for it. They, they like the memory of what they remember, the work ethic. They would like you to cut the grass, but they have no reason why or why. They have no reason to say why there's a value in cutting the grass. There's no reason, there's no, no reason to tell you why you should change your underwear on Saturday night. You are left only with a crassest of things, and that is a fear of nonconformity, a kind of fear of what the neighbors would, would say. And in contrast to that, you have the modern mass. You are the recipients of the enlightenment coming, grinding to a death. You are the recipients of the renaissance grinding to a death. And you look around you and you scream plastic, and it is plastic. And you look at the great majority of your parents, you look at the great majority of your professors, you look even the ones who are talking so big and loud-mouthed about liberalism, and you find that they just do things out of habit. And that's all. And pretty soon, even the things that are right become ugly. And they begin to have a stench about them. Now, it's at this particular place that the free speech movement and the Berkeley, the Berkeley, early, the Berkeley the, uh, disturbances arose five, four or five years ago, six years ago, whatever it was. It was the, the hippie movement and the free speech movement. The hippie movement, of course, it rose out of the beats, thus drugs. The word hippie, as it developed originally in California, uh, really must always be connected with drugs. It was not basically a part of the free speech movement. They were quite separate. And yet they flowed together. A lot of people didn't understand why they flowed together. Even a lot of the people involved in them at Berkeley didn't understand why really they were flowing together. But even though they didn't understand why it was flowing together, it did flow together. And it's a very simple reason. And that is they were both followers of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, whether they knew it or not. They were both followers of autonomous freedom. They stood in the stream of, Go of, of, of Rousseau, Gauguin, Thoreau. They were the, they were the children of hedonism. They were opposed to any authority. So when this, when this group of people then, even more than now, but when they screamed fascist or Cossack, it did not have the normal use of fascist and it did not have the normal meaning of Cossack. What it meant is anything that cut across their individual freedom. So anybody was a fascist who didn't allow them to be totally free. And the free speech movement at Berkeley, you grabbed the microphone and you shouted into it the famous four-letter word. And then you walked away with satisfaction. Why the shouting the four-letter word would give in a microphone should be considered the acme of freedom is a little difficult to understand. The four-letter word has its place, but 
to think that this is the height of freedom is a bit naive. And yet this is exactly their idea of the height of freedom. It was, I'm sorry, wrong tense, was. So you had the, the Berkeley thing and the, those, some of you were involved in those things. And we've had lots of people here who were involved in the free speech movement, who were involved in the early hippie movement. And it was a, it was a utopianism. It was a romanticism. It was a thought that man was going to be able to produce a new elite, something beautiful, that would get, give unlimited freedom with no form and would produce, would give a solution to man's dilemma and especially his modern technical logical problems and the clanking of the universal cosmic machine. At the same time, there arose a new, a different elite. And this was the Galbraith and the Kerr elite. So you have a very curious thing. You have Kerr, who was president of uh, there, uh, who was uh, uh, the second, as it were, the second voice, because Galbraith is the first voice on the second kind of an elite. And it, interestingly enough, it arose at exactly the same time. At the time when you had the, the free speech um, hippie thing arising, you had Galbraith beginning to speak clearly. And Galbraith stressed especially in the New Industrial State, but in the Reith Lectures in Britain before he wrote the New Industrial State, or at least until before it was published, the concept also that our society has ground to a, our society has come to a dead end. He never used the word plastic, but an ugly dead end. And he put forth another solution, and that is the academic and especially the scientific elite plus the state would revamp our society. So at that particular moment, I was lecturing on the two elites. And these were the two elites <coughs> coming forth at that time. They came forth almost simultaneously. The concept of an autonomous freedom, following from Rousseau, Thoreau, a hedonistic freedom, and on the other side, an establishment, establishment elite. So you had a, a freedom elite, a hippie elite, a hedonist elite, and an establishment elite. And they just came forward and faced each other. And this is where we must realize we are today with developments, as I'll now go on with the developments. The problem of the hippie and the free speech elite was that it, couldn't, it had no striking force. The early free speech people, as much as we may not like their four-letter words being screamed in the microphone, might have hurt our ears, some of us, Yet we had to say that at least they were for freedom. At least they were for freedom. So much so that the free speech movement refused to be political. It had no political overtones. They were all political in the highest meaning of all political. However, they quickly recognized uh, the leaders of it, and especially Allen Ginsberg, that this wasn't going to go. And you remember these things, this thing I've used for a long time now, uh, of what was, I think, undoubtedly the most important issue of the San Francisco article, in which they had a full, it was the long, biggest, I think, printing of the article, in which they had this uh, Watts, Snyder, uh, Leary, and Ginsburg uh, give their, uh, have a meeting together. The big four met together. And there was all kinds of romantic statement about now we were coming to a utopia. Everything was going to be terrific under this concept of freedom. 
And Ginsburg, as you remember, punctured the whole thing because Ginsburg is the real brain in this setting. And Ginsburg public, printed, uh, pub, uh, pricked the balloon by simply turning to Leary and saying to Tim, but Tim, somebody must make the poster. It's one of the most important sentences that have been said in the last ten years because suddenly people began to realize it wasn't going to go. They were functioning in, the, in a vacuum. And they were producing, not only were they not able to fight back against quote-unquote the pigs uh, when there was a rush on Haight-Asbury, uh, but equally, uh, equally, they weren't able to produce anything in Haight-Asbury except a desert. Something as ugly and dirty and nasty as one could imagine. A real desert. A real ugliness. With girls really picked up as flower children at 12 and really over the hill by 14 and destroyed. So there was a real ugliness in this, and a real lack of a striking force, and this was just felt. You could have, so you had, uh, so you, you moved towards just dropping out, with or without drugs. And you must understand that society can only stand so much of this. You must have compassion on society, too. Just society is society. Man is made as a social, social being. It's where God has made it. But if you're going to have society, there must be some kind of order. I don't care what society you find, there must be some kind of order. And you must understand that society can only stand so many dropouts. So you can think, let us say, that we had a society of 100 people on a desert island, and one person dropped out. Well, it would be easy for the 99 to carry the 100, but if 10 dropped out and 90 had to carry the 100, then there's a problem. And if 40 dropped out and 60 had to carry the 40, it would be it would be coming be moving toward the impossible. And you must understand that the the these people are dropouts. They live upon the society which they despise. We must say this very firmly. So at Woodstock, for example, Woodstock would have been an impossible thing if uh, a, a young fellow who had inherited several million capitalist dollars had not spent a, a million and a half dollars on Woodstock. It would have been impossible. Just It wasn't a flower that grew naturally in the field. And it, there is a society only can carry so much of this. And therefore, I'm not saying right or wrong now in the, uh, in the uh, midnight ride or something like this. But what I'm saying is you must have compassion and realize people cannot carry an, un, an unlimited number of non-producers. This is it's just an economically an impossibility, as well as psychologically an impossibility. So you began with this to get a, a tension, a tremendous tension. And uh, at the mo at the beginning of the hippie thing, the thing that I was lecturing on then so much was the fact of my uh, my my compassion for the hippie, because the first sentence the hippie is right, the the the, pla the culture is plastic. But the knowledge, I was sure, and it's proved to be the case, and I think the next ten years, the next decade, this is going to develop into an explosive thing uh, that is going to lead to really, really uh, a completely new sociological structure. And that is the fact that the, the tragedy that the hippie in pleading for freedom was almost certainly going to lead in exactly the thing, in the direction of what he didn't like and already, and now in a worse form, and that is a loss of freedom by an increasingly totalitarian society. And this is a real sorrow. Utopianisms through the years have always produced totalitarianism. And I always would point out that if you have, if you have uh, Thoreau's Walden, you will eventually come to Skinner's Walden too. 
It isn't possible to go any other way. It will come. It will come. Utopianisms in a fallen world will not work. Utopianisms in a fallen world will not work. They just won't. On the other hand, while you have this problem arising from the side of the free speech movement and the hippies, you have the problem at the same time of, uh, of Galbraith, the Galbraith side. The putting forth of this concept of an academic scientific state elite without any control upon them. Assuming that just because they're members of the academic society and especially scientists that they'll be objective. And why? Why anyone would think they would when they have produced the universities they've produced is a little hard to understand. You must understand that Galbraith's concept is that there's no outside absolute and no universal to limit this elite. This is the establishment elite. It is the establishment totalitarian. I think really it's a mistake to put our attention between the left-wing elite and the right-wing. I think this is a mistake. I think this thing is... The real tension, the real thing to be afraid of, is the tension uh, that uh, stands between the new left and the establishment, Galbraith kind of totalitarianism. Because we must understand this bets on something. It bets on the fact that the academic man will be a good man. It bets on the factor that the scientist will be objective. That as soon as he puts on a white coat, he's a different man than when he didn't have his white coat on. The concept of a better society, forced from the top down, Galbraith even says it will, it will set a new standard of aesthetics, but having no absolutes, no restraints, such as given by Samuel Rutherford's Rex Lex. There'll be no checks and there'll be no balances. <coughs> now, moving along, we must understand that things have developed very, very rapidly in the last six years. The Berkeley, the modern Berkeley riots and situation have, have no relationship whatsoever to the early Berkeley scene. Telegraph Avenue today has no relationship to Telegraph Avenue just six years ago. It's entirely a new ship. Now you find, therefore, that out of the free speech and the hippie thing has come, come a, a split. <coughs> You have the anarchists. Anarchism, of course, is not new. And one must understand there are two kinds of anarchists. There is the anarchist who says everything stinks so much, the thing to do is just blow it up and walk away. The best thing to do, if you could reach the hydrogen bomb, is blow it up. But most of the anarchists we would find in a place like Stanford today are optimistic anarchists, the romantic anarchists, parallel to Terry Southern's concept of pornography. You remember Terry Southern and pornography, that you write this dirty stuff hoping for an elite for a golden age. The modern anarchist, young anarchist, thinks that things are bad, and they're so bad that if you just blow them up, a better thing will come out. This, of course, is absolutely romantic. There is no rationale as to assume why what will come out will be better than what you blew up. But there is a strong, a strong growth of anarchism. And you mustn't minimize this. You mustn't minimize this. Many, many of the student leaders are anarchists. And my emphasis about the black flag flying with the red is not just a quip. The black flag is there. 
And these anarchists, the modern romantic anarchists, really think, well, we'll, we'll smash the universities and then we'll smash society and something better must come. I've talked to them, you stand for universities, many of them very brilliant, but they never have any answers as to a program. Not at all. They never have any answers as to why you think that things will be better after you've blown up the present situation. At the same time, you have, of course, the largest section out of the hippie movement, which have spread, split off from the real freedom side and have given up freedom are the people who have followed Marcuse. These are the new left. And Marcuse sets forth the concept of a real totalitarianism, a real elite, elite in which the minority will tell the majority what to do and shut them up if they <coughs> won't stop talking. And so you have now, you begin to see you have various forces <coughs> of this. You have the hippie people, the free speech people, or dropouts. You have large number, though. Uh, at the same time, you had the the establishment elite from Galbraith, which there's no guarantees of freedom whatsoever. You have, on the other hand, the Marcus left-wing totalitarianism. These people are are again romantic. The old left didn't make it, and they're betting that the new left will that they will be able to give freedoms without, without Stalinism. And why they think they're going to do it this time when they weren't ever able to do it before, no one will ever give you an answer. You ask why, why, why? Nobody ever answers you, so they simply tell you to shut up. And I'm not theorizing, because I know some of these people. You're told to be quiet and to pick up the flag and walk. And you have here, and by the time you arrived at, at Wisconsin, by the time you arrived at the Sorbonne, this was the dominant note. The dominant note is that the majority is to shut up while the minority governs. First in the university and then in the state. Because you must not kid yourself, the student revolt is not aimed at ending at the university. It's aimed at the state. It's aimed to take over and change society from the top to the bottom. The university is only the training ground. The university is the point at which they may strike. <coughs> but it's not the end of the thing. Marcuse is not written for the university. It's written for society as society. And they're, they're betting that, that though in the, the old left in Russia promised that there would only be socialism for a few years and then they would arrive at a real communism. And in the interim, there would be a dictatorship of the proletariat which would soon pass away. Fifty years have passed away and the, and the death of Trotsky, the murder of Trotsky, proved that they couldn't stand the voice that asked still for a return to the old idealism. The tanks in Czechoslovakia put an exclamation point that after 50 years, there has been not been a, a paying off of the promises. But the new left now arises and says, now we will do it. We will do it. It's a, another romanticism. And yet one which, is, uh, which has very strong implications. 
You must see this is not a theory, but we are now facing, for example, after Wisconsin and the Columbia, a clear situation in which the minority of a couple hundred told the majority of, say, 30,000 to just shut up. It's the very opposite of the free speech movement. The free speech movement, you were, everybody was supposed to take the mic and speak. But with the new left, they will make a ring around the president's offices, for example, and tell 30,000 people just to shut up while 200 tell them what to do. I'm not being facetious. It's where we are. We better understand what is involved in this as we have come to this, uh, this far. It isn't just America. It's true in the general international uh, situation. Marcuse is the man that binds them together. The new left, wherever you find the, wherever you find the, the new left today in the student revolution, you will find Marcuse. Marcuse is, uh, is there, is the one that binds them together. And his basic theory is very simple. A left-wing elite in which the minority will control the majority for the majority's good. No categories. You never find categories. You never find any areas of, of, of checks and balances. It's just that the majority will tell the minority what to do. And how we can follow, how so many can follow this, uh, when, we, when the old left has, follow, has failed, who rose out of an idealism that failed so bitterly and is still failing under the tanks of Czechoslovakia, let's say, is really very difficult to understand. I think it is only desperation that has left them here. Modern man, as you, has come to the place where he has become an irrationalist. He leaps because he must leap. So we have, let us notice now, two elites. Two elites. The establishment elite, as Galbraith would have put forth, and the left-wing elite, the new left elite. No absolutes. Therefore, you're only left with arbitrary absolutes set by a totalitarian minority. With the terror attitude of all the modern means of manipulation under control. And one feeling must be certainly a sadness. A sadness for that this is the end of the original student call for freedom in the midst of a plastic culture. So in putting in a real call against the plastic culture, we have ended at a place worse than the thing against the poorness of which they spoke. And that is something to be sad about. Now we come, therefore, and ask this, where does the Christian now stand at the moment, therefore? Well, we have the post-Christian world in which we are faced with a majority. And many, many Christians think the majority is allied to themselves. They don't understand the majority, the big middle class, the largest block really have, has, has no, no real relationship with the Christian except just a, what, a few outward things. In our Reformation countries, the large block of the middle class still have a memory that was produced by the Christian things. And so often they sound as though they're speaking for the Christian things. But there, it's a really a very great difference. It's only a memory. They like the old practical advantages of Christianity. But they have little in the way of principle and base. They like the modern affluency. 
They like the frozen foods. They like the chrome on the automobiles. And they like the results, but they have no basis for them, which means then there's a corollary. And that is, I believe with all my heart, the great middle group would give up their liberties to protect their affluence. Uh, I, I'm certain of it. The great middle block that the great middle block that has no basis for their has no basis for their values. If they are confronted with a choice of giving up their liberties or giving up their fluency, they will give up their affluence. They will not give up their fluency. They'll give up their liberty. And this is where I think the danger lies at the moment. And for any Christian to associate himself absolutely with this great majority block really is filled with folly. Just because they say something like order in the streets and we say yes, there has to be some order in the streets. And then to assume that therefore they and we are allies is a complete, complete misunderstanding. They will sell out anything for the sake of, sake of peace, quiet, affluency, and just plain and easy life. So what you have sensed in, in many of your parents, many of your professors, unhappily it's there. And the Christian must not become confused. The great middle block, the silent minority, is not a Christian minority. We live in a post-Christian world. The silent minority is just as much post-Christian as, is the, as are the others. Now in the student world, this, I'm convinced, is the explanation of why 20 or 30,000 students will be still and stand like sheep when 200 disrupt the university. The simple reason is that 20 or 30,000 have no principles upon which to operate. They are only there as a part of the middle class. They may wear their hair long, and they may wear a mustache. They may smoke grass. But they're only middle class people in a, in a society, in an educational establishment which has lost its way. And the long hair and the smoking of the grass does not disprove it. They're there because the establishment guarantees certain things. And that is that if you're going to really stand either in being a social acceptance or an economic well-being, you must have a university education. And jolly well, you better not just have a bachelor's anymore. You must have a master's. And jolly well, you better not have your master's. You've got to have your PhD. And it has been suggested, what's his name? Uh, the one who wrote the House of Intellect at Columbia. Pardon? That's right. Has, pardon? Yes, no. No, Barzon. Barzon, I'm sorry. Barzon. Barzon has suggested facetiously, he's so sick of the lot, though, he's helped produce part of it. Because he's the same kind of a man. He's the old liberal that doesn't like what he produced. But he's so sick of the establishment, the educational establishment, that he suggests the only solution will be giving every American a PhD on birth. <laughs> and it's funny, and then you have to cry. Because the whole thing is wrong. Why do you go to university? You go to university because, well, society says this is the way you have status to do. You'll have no status unless you have a university training. And secondly, statistically, you can prove 
that a university graduate will earn in a lifetime a hundred and some thousand dollars more than the non-university graduate. So off you trace to the university. And if this is the reason you're in the university, you're a middle class man, no matter how few vows you take. And you're a middle class man who will be silent when the majority tells you what to do because you have no principles whatsoever upon which to act on, in which to challenge, in which to challenge the minority who takes over the university. In other words, you have this big, big, ugly, middle class thing. But it's, it's in the university too. It's in the university too. Why are people in the university? And it's, so you have a middle class, the majority, the majority, undoubtedly, you have a silent majority. A silent majority out of the universities, a silent majority in the universities. The silent majority in the universities will soon be out of the universities and they will make up some more of the same thing. In which money counts. What you're doing is building your security. What you want is your share of the fluency. And the rest of it, well, let it go. So you're faced with this huge majority. But don't don't become confused and think that just because it sounds something in his bourgeois voice like what Christianity says, uh, that it is Christianity. It only sounds like it because Christianity produced the middle class not as an ugly thing, but, but, but out of the natural flow of the Reformation. You had a huge middle class come forward, which gave the economic and social stability. There's no doubt about this. It's a product of the Reformation. But it was not ugly as long as it had a base. But as soon as it has no base and it's only oper operating for its own selfish reasons, then it's ugly, even though it seems to say what Christianity would say. So it seems to say what Christianity say, but it has no base. So now it's ugly when it wasn't ugly when it was speaking with some kind of reason. So first of all, what are we confronted with? We're confronted with this, this massive majority. And don't, don't be kidded by it. Don't, don't be, make a mistake of what it is. And then you have on the other side in the 20th, post, 20th century post-Christian world, you have the break, breakup of the various things I've mentioned. You had the Total Freedom Group, the Op Out Group, the Woodstock Group, the Isle of White People, who have no answer for society or for the meaning of the individual. Now, the line, the line of the Woodstock People between the Woodstock People and the non-Woodstock People is a is something like a line of an amoeba. You can't draw a sharp line because there are real op-out people. And then there are others who flow back and forward. There are op-out people sometime, and then there are activist people <laughs> under different situations. The second group are the anarchists, who tear down without a positive solution. The third group is the left wing of the right wing totalitarianism. It's not a gay picture as to what we face at the end of the 20th century. So you have, you have on one side, you can lump them for a moment, the new left, the op-out people, the anarchists, with the left, with the, the new left insisting on elite, and then you have facing this the establishment elite. And 
there they stand, face each other, face to face. And the big mass of people who just want peace and who just want quiet and who just want two automobiles in every garage and three boats on the lake. And these other two establishments facing each other. Now, what will come next? Well, of course, one doesn't, one can't be sure. But I'd make a suggestion. And that is, as the op-out group, the anarchist group, and the new left group get greater, because you must remember they are a minority. They're a very, very small minority, really. It leads toward chaos. And the great middle block of society will strike back <coughs> because they don't like the chaos. And therefore, they will tend to give in more and more to the establishment totalitarian elite. And I think this is what we're going to see. I think we're already seeing it. And I think it's going to increase. That as you have the, the new left elite and the anarchist elite and the opt-out people, as they increase in numbers, this great massive majority will feel more and more threatened. And therefore, they will tend to give in to the establishment elite. Because at least at the beginning, the establishment elite is not as painful as the new left elite. They do it more gently. It'll come through the established forms. They will come through the established society. The thing will not be seen as threatened. And the establishment elite undoubtedly will seem less painful at the beginning than the new left elite. Which would you choose? Well, you don't want either one. But I suppose even for Christians, that the coming of the establishment, at least, at least at the beginning, I don't think it will make any difference eventually, but at least at the beginning it won't be as opposed to the Christian as the, uh, as the other elite. I guess that's true. I guess it's true. Because they will still keep saying the same words. There'll be the waving of the flag. There'll be the use of the word God. And in a situation like, and the other side won't. And as the flag is waved and as the word God is used, I guess at the beginning the Christian will not feel the squeeze as quickly as he would from the side of the other, the other side. I suppose that's true. But anyway, whether he does or not, certainly it will be more comfortable for the great middle class to shift on this way, it seems to me, than the other. So with all the talk about the fear of the new left, as much as I think there is something to be afraid of from the new left, on the other hand, I think the establishment elite <coughs> is something more to be afraid of eventually. Now, in this situation then, I would analyze this is where we are at the beginning of 1970. January 1, 1970. That's, I'm, I'm convinced at this moment this is where we are. This huge middle class group, the new left elite, <coughs> balance backward and forward, sort of amoeba kind of lack of clarity of lines of opt-out people, the anarchist, and as these get stronger, the great middle class becomes afraid and will give in to the establishment elite. Now, in the light of this, what should the Christian think and do? Well, I feel that there is the Christian must see himself as a revolutionary. 
And this is exactly what you haven't been given in your Orthodox, your Orthodox and your Evangelical churches. You've been urged to be nice young people and maintain the status quo, not rock the boat. This is absolutely the wrong advice to give any of you today. In the first place, it's psychologically wrong to tell people that the, the young people that the best thing they can do is just live in yesterday. But that isn't the real problem. The real problem is just it hasn't analyzed the solution right, rightly. The Christian today is the is the real revolutionary. The Christian day is the real revolutionary. He stands against the world, and that's not something new. The early Christians stood against the Roman and the Greek world. The early teachers of the Reformation stood against the Roman Catholic world. It's not to be surprised. Many, many periods of Jewish history, the prophets stood against their society. Elijah was the revolutionary. I'll never forget. And we must see ourselves as not being the maintainers of the status quo. We must see the true biblical Christianity as being revolutionary in a way that nothing else is revolutionary in our day. Because on both sides of the Iron Curtain, we live in a Hegelian world, a world of synthesis. The Christian is the man who insists that there is a truth. So we are revolutionary against what is on both sides of the Iron Curtain. And if we're going to have any hope, we have to see ourselves as being really a revolutionary people. And as I say, this is nothing new. That's exactly what the New Testament tells us the situation is in the world anyway. The, the, the Christian is a revolutionary. And I just, I cringe at the way Christianity is presented to you. I cringe at what those of you who come out of evangelicalism and orthodoxy has been, have been taught. You have been taught something which places you, makes you be status quo people without the understanding that the status quo no longer belongs to us. We are the absolute minority. We're the minority faced with the new left. We're the minority faced with the establishment elite. We're the minority faced with the op-out people. We're the minority faced uh, with the great middle class, the bourgeois class, who have no principles, who function merely out of their own kind of selfishness. So the young people may function out of a hedonism which is horrible and finally destructive, but this big middle class is functioning out of their own kind of selfishness. And in such a setting, the Christian is to be the revolutionary. We are to speak about love, but it's not a, it's not a formless love. It's not a love that loves everything equally. <coughs> Biblical Christianity emphasizes not, emphasizes not only God's love, but his holiness. Mm -hmm. There is a form as well as a freedom. Love does not mean motion without categories. That's the modern man's position. It's not the Christian position. There are categories. There are things that can be brought forth by a significant man which are contrary to the character of God and contrary to the character of God as he has he told us what this means in a fallen world. The Christian then is the true revolutionary, a setter of forth, an understanding of truth, an understanding of what is, an understanding of the last screen as being the existence of a personal infinite God who exists and has a character so that all things are not equally right and who has spoken in a propositional, verbalized, 
revelation in the Bible so that we can have God categories both in relationship to knowing so we're not confused between fantasy and reality and also categories of morals, categories of law, of law and social action. From the biblical viewpoint, man is not dead. He's not dead because God is there. Instead of man not being dead, he's wonderful. Even if he revolts against God and he's lost for eternity, he's still wonderful because he's not a part of the cosmic machine. Man is wonderful not because he's redeemed, but man is wonderful because he was made in the, object, the image of God even if he wasn't redeemed and isn't redeemed. And even though he's lost for eternity, he is not a part, let me repeat, of the cosmic machine. Modern man does not understand who he is. He sees himself as a part of the cosmic machine. Man is not a part of the cosmic machine, even if he is not redeemed. But happily, through the substitutionary death of Christ, in space and time and in history, there is a way to care for the true moral guilt which we have through our revolution against God and return to fellowship with God. And upon then God's propositional revelation in verbalized form to us, we have something wherein we can build, not only how we can go to heaven, but how we can build in our arts and our culture. And I would just say, don't you understand how completely revolutionary this is? How you ought to understand you are the Bolshevik because you are not Hegelian and you believe there are categories and modern man has no categories. You believe there is a way to build socially against social justice as well as getting to heaven because there is something that God has said who is te that tells us something. We stand as an absolute phenomenon in the world. We're an absolute phenomenon today. There have been times when men were where the discrepancy was not as clearly indicated as it is today. But today you are an absolute phenomenon if you're a Christian. Now then, I would put forth three things then we must operate upon if we're to function in a meaningful way, in a way that will produce something in the midst of such a generation, if I am correct in my analyzation, as I'm completely convinced I am correct. If we're confronted with what I said we're confronted with, this big mass of middle class, and yet there are these people just given to sell their own kind of selfishness. And then the establishment elite and the left-wing elite added to it in the borderline cases, the op-out people and the anarchists and so on. Uh, if we are an absolute minority, as much a minority as the early church was in the days of the Roman Empire, uh, what shall we set forth of how we shall act? And I would give you three basic things quickly as to what we must keep in mind. The first of these is the fact of the difference between being a co-belligerent and an ally. We do not belong to any of these camps. We do not belong to the huge middle class. We simply don't. We do not belong to the class that is operating upon a Christian memory without a Christian base and that therefore results in selfishness. We must not ally ourselves to this as an ally though we will be a co-belligerent with them occasionally. Secondly, we must understand that we will not be an ally with the new left, nor the dropout people. These are not who we are either. We are not dropout people. Those of you who heard Udo's sermon a couple Sundays ago, which I hope he'll work out and get into print, on the fact of the... Of the there is a reason for Christians to work after they're saved. 
You're not saved by working, but after you become a Christian, there's a reason for work. So we're not among the dropout people. We're not. We are called upon to establish man's dominion over the earth and not just sit like a toadstool. We're certainly not a part of the new left, though sometimes we will seem to say the same thing the new left is saying. So when the new left shouts social justice, we should have been saying it for years. And therefore some people say, ha, you belong to the new left. Because after all, they are shouting social justice and you are saying social justice. This must mean you belong to them. We must have the courage at times for people not to understand. We must say some, We must say what's right. If there's a cry for social justice and there have been social injustice, then even though it sounds we're, we, as though we are uniting with the new left, uh, we must say it. We must have the courage to say it. But we ourselves must understand that we are not allies with the new left. We're a co-belligerent. And there's a difference between co being a co-belligerent and an ally. A great difference. An ally means that you're united with them. A co-belligerent means that at a certain point of situation, you are saying and standing for the same thing they happen to be seeing and standing for, but you're doing it for entirely different reasons, and pretty soon you will part. You don't join their camp. The same thing with the establishment elite. At times we will seem to say what the establishment elite says. If the establishment elite says there must be some order in the streets, you can't have a society with a total chaos. We will be saying the same things at times. But it doesn't mean that we are to forget that we're not allies with the establishment elite. We're only co-belligerents. We are allies with nobody except Christians. If we believe Christianity is true in the old sense of truth, then you must realize that if people do not have this basis, they will not lead to the same end. Even though at isolated points, we seem to be saying the same thing. And what I'm saying is a very important thing. I've seen many young evangelical pastors suddenly confronted. And many of you, many students on the university campus, confronted with two camps, both shouting, you must choose. And in desperation, the Christian chooses one, and he is destroyed. You must have the courage to say a plague on both your houses. Even though at times you seem to be saying the same thing. So the first thing we must understand and teach for our spiritual children, our physical children, is that we are rebels. We must teach our children to be willing to stand against the social majority. And that doesn't mean just wearing long hair. My little story about the Strasbourg people a few years ago. So all the students wanted to be nonconformists, so they all wore blue jeans. And they not only all wore blue jeans, but you couldn't wear new blue jeans, you had to wear old blue jeans. So therefore, if your blue, old blue jeans ripped on a nail and you bought new blue jeans, you washed your new blue jeans in salt so they looked like old blue jeans, so you wouldn't be a conformist. The answer is bah. <laughs> These are conformists. Don't think that you're a nonconformist just because you wear a beard or long hair. This, is, this doesn't prove anything. And the Christian must be the real nonconformist. He must be the real nonconformist. He must be the co-belligerent. Consciously, intelligently a co-belligerent at certain places. But always understanding he is the rebel. He belongs to none of these camps. He is the nonconformist 
on the basis of truth. It's a nonconformist on the basis that there is a God who is there, a God who has spoken. And if you have to stand against the whole world, you'll stand against the whole world. That's what it means by being a Christian and knowing it's true. This little thing of Athanasius, too good a story to be true, but nevertheless it's worth repeating that Athanasius saying, when the whole world was on the verge of heresy in the early church, of saying the world against Athanasius, Athanasius against the world. Well, we must understand it's the Christian against the world. If you're the last man left in your community, you still stand up. If you're the last man left in your university circle when you go back home, you still stand up. If you're the last man left in a church that has become upper middle class, orientated, you will still stand if you're the last one, even when God words are employed. The second thing we must understand is related to this, and that is that if we are going to be a force in such a situation that we live in, we must put an emphasis, we must put an emphasis upon truth. We must put an emphasis upon truth and not, not, not conform to heresy. Not play down the difference between heresy and truth. This brings with a practical thing. It's not only talking. What, what kind of churches will we belong to? What does this mean in reference to the ecumenical movement? In the practice of truth means what in evangelistic campaigns? Can we expect a 20th century generation that doesn't belong truth exists, doesn't take serious, doesn't believe truth exists, to take seriously that we believe in truth if in our practice we destroy the lines between truth and error? I think not. I think not. I think not. We can talk about truth till we're the blue in the face, but they'll think by truth we mean what they mean. That is non-truth. Relativistic truth. Sociological truth, psychological truth, arbitrary absolutes applied by the state or society, unless we are willing to stand for truth when it hurts. We cannot say that Christianity is true and everything else is false, and then in an evangelistic campaign, join with somebody who teaches the opposite. It can't be. We've cut the ground from under our feet. We have to think it through again. Can we expect our generation to think that we take truth seriously when we're the last people who do emphasize truth if we do not stand for truth when it is costly? <coughs> Can we expect to have them take it seriously and not put an adequate emphasis on the contentfulness of truth, on the fact that it must be not cool communication but hot? This is going to take some thinking through. Some of you will find yourself in strange positions. We all will find our strange self in strange positions if I am right in my analysis and the projections that I visualize in the next, in the next decade. In January 1st, 1970, I believe by January 1st, 1980, if Christ does not come back, these things will move with titanic speed. They have already moved with titanic speed. Think of, think of what would have happened if you'd have gone on Telegraph Avenue and told the early hippies and the early free speech movement that their movement was going to lead to where it has led in six years. They never would have believed you. It's been a tight, been a tremendous speed. If that's true in the last six, what about the next ten? The last point, 
is that we must exhibit, as I've stressed the fact that we must be co-belligerents and not allies, and we must stress truth in practice as well as work. Thirdly, we must exhibit that we can produce real communities on the basis of God's existence and God's propositional revelation. We must not only say we can, we have something to build on when you are building on sand, but we must exhibit that we can produce these in our own communities. In other words, I believe every local church, every community ought to be a pilot plan to prove that we can have in our own communities what humanism would like to have in their communities and have not been able to produce. That you can start with Haight-Asbury is a beautiful concept and turn it into a desert. Christianity must show that in our communities we can have, we can be human. We can be human. Modern man's whole concept is he is a machine. He doesn't know who he is. We must exhibit upon the basis of Christianity as being really true and practicing this truth that we can produce something that the humanist wants and has not been able to produce. Basically, this will be exhibited in exhibiting true human, true, a true humanity. And this surely then is another place where we have failed. Because our churches, our communities, our missions have not put much emphasis on this. We have been preaching points. We have been activity centers. There's been very, very little emphasis on community in the evangelical group. And this is wrong. It's wrong biblically. If you examine the early church, the early church had a sense of community. A community that spanned the Jew and the Gentile, that spanned the rich and the poor. A church at Antioch that could take in Herod's foster brother and the slave. A situation when the Jews were hungry, the Gentiles gave money that they might eat. A situation when the people of Jerusalem needed help, the people of Macedonia gave it. Tremendous community concept. Not a communism, because they were totally free, as you read the early chapters of Acts. But nevertheless, their love and community included the whole of life. The whole of life. Christ was the Lord of the whole life, and this meant something in their community together. It meant cutting down into the whole of life, including the material needs of life. Now, every big industry, when it's going to spend millions and millions on a big plant, they make a pilot plan first to show that it can be done. And I believe that with our stress on truth and purity of doctrine, there must be equally the stress on community as a pilot plant to show that on the basis of Christianity, we will not have that which is perfect, but we can have that which is beautiful. And in the midst of an age like we live in, as I have brought forth analysis of it, as I say, I'm convinced I'm right. I could be wrong in small detail, but I'm convinced I'm not wrong in the flow. And we must have these factors if we're going to be Christians in such an age. It's not an age for softness. It's an age for toughness. It's an age for keeping the laws of God. It's not an age for our own, our own softness, our own selfishness. God has given his laws. God has given his rules. We're to live by them. We're to show we're to take them seriously, regardless of the cost. So the three points, quickly again, to understand that you're going to be 
co-belligerent, but you're not going to be an ally with any of the post-Christian world. Not any other. Even if it's dressed up in God words. Secondly, we must stress truth. <coughs> and not only in what we say, but what we practice. There must be a stress of the practice of truth when it's costly to us in all the areas, ecclesiastical areas, every kind of area. And then thirdly, none of this is going to be worth anything, however, if we don't show that in our, in our churches and in our missions and so on, we can have real community. The missionary, all too often, has had the we-they mentality. The person he reaches has no sense of oneness with a missionary. If you don't believe me, talk to the Africans that have come here through the years. The Africans feel it like mad. They feel shut away from the missionary. And the way one must speak is through showing them that we're not, we're not emphasizing uniformity. But on the basis of really Christian base, we can have real community without uniformity. People can be different and yet be one. And this is our problem with our church at the end of the 20th century. How is the church going to be a community? It won't always be like a Labrie community. But we must learn to have community in the local church in, in Amsterdam, in, in Detroit, or wherever it is, in Los Angeles. How can this be done in the urban situation? Well, it won't be like Labrie, but there must be community. There must be some way to care for people. If we can't do it in large churches, we're going to have to do it in small. We may have to return to the smaller group. This does not mean the end of the church as an institutional entity at the end of the, uh, at, in our generation. I have all kinds of people out coming, many of them for many, many miles. Uh, do you think the institute church is done? And I would just say, no, I'm not. I don't think it's done. But I do think that while the institutional church is not done, I do think with all my heart that it's going to have to change its form in order to have a place for community as well as a place for preaching and as a place for teaching and activity. We must exhibit that we can be human to each other and with each other upon the basis of the revelation of God. That we can be human in covering the whole things of life and that we can be human whether we're here in Weymouth, in the Alps, or whether we have to go back to the scene in London. And this is what we're struggling with, say, at 52 Cleveland Road. What does this mean in the midst of an urban London situation? But we're far from perfect, but we're seeing some things that are beautiful and we're glad. So this is my analysis of the, of the student revolt and the, the change of the year in the last of the second, of the last of the 20th century. And what I think we're going to have to cultivate by the grace of God and looking to God to help us in the work of the Holy Spirit if we're really going to be a factor or even be able to breathe in the midst of the next 10 years projection of what's coming in the 20th century let alone let alone uh, reach other people if we're going to help if we're going to keep our own children and if we're even going to be able to breathe for ourselves we're going to have to learn these things let alone reaching out and reaching other people for Christ in the, in the midst of a 20th century world